Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guests are Justin Martin, who is the co-director of The Jungle at the current theater through May 19th. Also with me is an actor from the production, Amar Haj Ahmad, who is Syrian, now lives in England, and has been with the production since it was in England. Justin, you've been working very closely with the director, Stephen Daldry, for many years, going back to Billy Elliot. How did you guys meet, and what was that connection like? We met through a mutual friend of ours, Serena Hill, who was the casting director at the National Theatre, who became the casting director at the Sydney Theatre Company. And they were looking for someone to take Billy Elliot around the world. And she put me forward. And Stephen, when he likes people, trust their taste, and so took a risk on me. And he talks about a coincidence of taste. And so we've worked together as long as we have because of this sort of overlapping coincidence of taste. Well, you're listed as associate director on a number of productions with Stephen Daltrey. What exactly were you doing on these different productions? And then you're listed as a co-director for The Jungle. I mean, I started off with Stephen as a resident director. My job was just to maintain Billy Elliot after he left. And then as we started working on new shows together, we started building them together. And that's where I became an associate director. And Stephen is a very generous human being. And he feels that the co-director title articulates the way in which we work together. It's a case of if someone has a better idea, they do it. If someone runs out of ideas and the other one picks the ball up. But it's been a very, I call it a conversation. It's been a very fruitful 14-year long conversation. Let's talk about The Jungle This play, it's an interactive, kind of immersive play with some audience members being part of the surroundings because they've torn out the current, and they're able to do that because the next show coming in will tear everything out as well. The two playwrights, how did you meet them? How did they find out about this uh, refugee camp in Calais? How did all of that begin? The Joes uh, were sort of mutual friends uh, after university, and they were young, emerging playwrights. And that's Joe Murphy. Joe Murphy and Joe Robertson. And they just had an exciting voice and interest in the world. And they were a a little bit aimless at one point in their career, early on in their career. And uh, director Ian Rickson said, why don't you go out and have a look at what's going on in the Calais refugee camp? And they went out there and they rang us and they said, we think we want to stay out here and we want to build a theatre. And so we raised the money and we sent them a geodesic dome, which they took out and they started at the Good Chance Theatre, which was a, really an opportunity for people in the camp who were largely waiting to get to the UK and trying every night to reconnect with their stories. There's a, what, what we found in the camp is a lot of people had fallen into the single narrative of being a refugee and lost the narrative of who they were as individuals. And what the theatre attempted to do was allow them to reclaim the narrative of who they are, where they'd come from, where they were going, and and what they wanted uh, for the future. Were the shows put on with them speaking? Were they just like Shakespeare or whatever? It was a combination. We used to have companies coming over, and they'd come over and do residencies there. But then also we'd do this thing every week, which is called the Hope Show, where refugees would, throughout the week, 
rehearse something and put it on on the weekend. The tricky thing with the jungle was it was a transient cast, so there were people coming and going all the time. So you might rehearse all week, and then your lead actor has made it to the UK, and so therefore on the opening, you know, on the show on a Saturday night, you didn't have them. It was a really interesting situation, but it made us collectively make work that you could put actors into very quickly and create a style of theatre that enabled people to tell and share stories. Well, you also had multiple languages. How did that work? The interesting thing about it, because everyone was that's in Calais was trying to get to the UK in some uh, shape or form, and a lot of them had come from countries where they were aware of English, English became the sort of language, shared language of the camp. So you had people from Afghanistan who were speaking Pashto, who couldn't necessarily speak to people who were from Sudan who were speaking Arabic, but English was the sort of shared common language. And so we, we muddled through collectively. But the Joes kept that theatre open for seven months, and they lived out there for seven months. I spent about two months out there, and Stephen spent a couple of weeks. And when we got back to London, we convinced Rufus Norris to turn it into a play, and so he commissioned a play for The National, which is the play that we've created here. So this national play was put on like this in a black box with environmental changes? Yeah, I think the initial idea was to put it in, in a sort of traditional proscenium arch theatre. But one of the things we learned from doing the workshops, and the National Theatre has a brilliant, uh, brilliantly supportive studio, which they sort of said, look, bring actors in and, and let's try things, was that um, we found that to create chaos took a lot of rehearsal. And a lot of the play was set in chaos because that was our experience in the jungle. So it was a case of how do you create chaos uh, without having to spend months and months rehearsing it. And so we put the audience in the middle and suddenly there's an inherent chaos. So the actors are acting on the tables that you sit at. They're acting around you on the floor in the aisles. So there's a lot of it's immersive. It's not interactive in a dangerous way. By that I mean it's not, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to get up and do something. And it's set in the cafe that we used to spend time in in the jungle. Does that mean that there's food and drink? We do serve food and we serve tea and rice and beans. The audience are very, very close in proximity to the actors. It is sort of, yeah, much more heightened and real. And uh, uh, Mark could probably speak a bit more about what that takes emotionally to do, but you have to be very truthful. When you got this idea, did anybody go, well, wait a second, how could we possibly afford this? I mean, with what kind of energy went into trying to figure out how to put it together beyond saying, well, the audience is in it. I think everybody believed in it. And that's why it happened. I think that we knew that it was an important issue within the UK. And it, the UK was wrestling with its relationship to the refugees trying to come to that country. And, and for lots of reasons, people just went, this is an important play. And we need to get behind it. So people did all sorts of deals and all sorts of uh, made all sorts of compromises in order for us to create the show that, that we've made. And I think you feel that, and you feel that within the acting company. There's a, there's a sort of love of the show and love for the show. Omar Hajramad. Okay, so you're an actor. You're in London. How do you find out that the show exists, that they're going to be doing this show? I was uh, invited to the first workshop. We have some mutual friends, an old girlfriend of Omar's, who uh, I said, look, I'm looking for some people to do this. And we're looking for people who are from the circumstances in which this play is set, who are actors. And she said, there's only one person you have to talk to. And he's amazing. And she was right. And, and Amar showed up on the first day of the workshop. It was a unique situation where the Joes, uh, Joe Robertson, Joe Murphy, knew ab about the history of the jungle, but didn't necessarily know about the history of certain characters. And so the actors very much helped create the characters. And, and we built the character of Safi, who Amar plays, around and with him. 
So it's sort of like chorus line. Yeah, a little bit. I think it's got an element of that. And we uh, and it, it was really important because we needed to make sure that, that I, I think uh, how you tell stories and who's allowed to tell stories is a very interesting question in today's theatrical landscape. And it's slightly frightening when you're creating cross-cultural stories as who has the right to do that. Um, and I think part of the way to do that, and the part of the way we got around that was to allow the actors to be in constant sort of open conversation with us. And it, it would be lax of me to say that they aren't intricately involved in the creation of this show. I think you see that when you see it. So, Amar, did you know as you were going to sit in that suddenly you would be part of the creation to the degree of creating your own character? It's interesting. It's the first time I hear about the coincidence of taste. After half an hour of working together, we felt mutual respect to how we are approaching the matter. And I felt safe, something I talk about always, that being a Syrian refugee for a while in, in England, especially at the time on parallel of what was going on in the Arab world, and I'm a graduate, so there were so many offers to come and do a Syrian refugee or play a terrorist, which is, we get invited to audition for. And I say, no, no. And that was the first production that I went and said, I really feel safe. Put everything I know there. And I think it would not be possible without the generosity of the directors and the writers, of course. The listening exercise in that room was remarkable by the directors. How many people were in the room at the time? The first one, like more than 30. We had a huge cast at the beginning, and, and most of them spoke and were all the languages that we had in the camp mm. uh, and either were you know, first generation or had come to the country as refugees mm -hmm. um, at some time in their lives. So it was really important to us that we, that we were truthful to the people that were in the camp. And some of the guys in the show, actually, we met in the jungle. There are actual people from the camp who are in the show here at the current. Yeah, who had received uh, asylum in the UK and were musicians or had done some acting or martial artists. It feels important that we are uh, honest to their story. And so we put them in the show. So, Amar, I guess you're speaking and the Joes are taking notes and then they're coming back and saying, what about this? How did that Actually, work? It's not, it's not to this extent like everyone in the room would say whatever they want and it's sometimes the writers like mainly the joes will come with a scene and then the directors will take over the like the helm of leading the conversation and then again and that is to me what was great about the directing is that the directors choose the time in, in which the actors have the right to say what they think because it might not be helpful for the dramaturgical journey of the play, because at the end of the day, it's not a documentary. It's a story. It's a story. Right. And so it's led by two directors who, who were fully aware, till this moment, after almost three years, till this moment, I come to Justin and say, can I just say, he said, I don't think we have time for that now. <laughs> I'll try to summarize this by saying, eight months for Joe and Joe in the Jungle, give them an idea about these cultures and backgrounds. But when they go deep to the motiv motivations and, and the religious, you know, backgrounds, they, they would come and question these things with us. Had you ever been in a refugee camp yourself? Uh, no. So for you, this was kind of, I mean, you knew Syria. No, but, but it's for a reason, like, it always sounds like being in a refugee camp is 
can be harder than living in a city. And when, when I claimed for asylum in, in Britain, I was finishing a tour uh, with a play and I couldn't go back to Syria. And then they offered me either to go and live in a camp outside London, and then the government will give me a little amount of money and I live in that tiny room. Or they said, wherever you want to live, you can live. And then you need to work and pay for that. And then I said, I'm not a real refugee. I'm not running from war. I, I was on a tour. No, I will live and work in London after four months of being in London. And that made life really hard. My family is scattered in different places in the world and they are in camps. I have my best friends in camps. And actually, I was invited a few times to go to Calais to see what's going on and to help. But I couldn't even help myself mentally at that point other than barely being patient. And I felt if I already have troubles going to Cali offering my help, I might distort anything those refugees are going through, you know, because I'm already not subtle, you know. Right. Well, you're, you kind of, you change the narrative by just being there. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what for someone like Amar brought to the show, other than being a, a brilliant actor, is a, a way of thinking that I remember one walking out one day and the Joes were interviewing about, they were just talking about this notion of what it is to be stuck um, between places and not to be people. And Amar, and they were just having a conversation out of that came a brilliant scene. Really, the, these guys became the inspiration for huge parts of the show and and. Um, I think you feel that when you see it, there is a there is a brilliant ownership over that show and over the characters that they play, and they play them, they inhabit them in a, in a very profound way, because they're intricately involved in the stitching of them. So the original script, when you walked in, changed really substantially in the course of how many months? We did four workshops and then a couple of uh, readings, yeah. and it was one of those shows which we built. And we built collectively. And we kept two actors from the workshop, which was Amar and another gentleman. And then we slowly built the family. So we'd do workshops with actors at the next one, and then we'd keep some of them. And so slowly but surely, we built built the show together. But it took us about a year and a half. And then even when we were in rehearsals, we spent a good part of the first three or four weeks still workshopping. Okay, so you're a director, and you're an actor, and you're working on this thing for a year and a half. How do you make money? We're working more than two years and a half. We're heading towards May 2019, three years. It's funny asking this question. After the first workshop... Which uh, was only... I mean, look, each workshop is only a week. Okay. Yeah, and, and then, then we stop for we... two months or whatever, and then we get invited again. So both of you were working on other projects at the same time. Yeah. This man was doing The Crown. After finishing the first workshop, you know, I'm working with these two great directors, and, and this feeling of safety and authenticity and great great sense of being in a kitchen cooking a production um, full of art, full of dignity, full of ambition, all these things, full of ethics, really respect, listening and conversation and love, love, so much kindness. And then the week finished and I was in a way, you know, you, you get it in the eyes and the hugs and the, we're going to work together and this thing is going to happen. And you're work, working with Stephen Daldry and his associate and now co-director for 14 years. So you say, well, these people want life. They say, let's work together. I was working in a bar, being 34, working in a bar in London with managers who are 20 and 19 and saying, oh, this is the aspiring actor or whatever. 
my agent would phone me and say, you have an audition. And I say, no, I don't want to take it from the jungle. And then I'd say, well, no, but I'm sure that we're going for it. It's amazing. It's great. And she said, well, I mean, I understand you have these personal relations now and friendships and whatever, but they, these directors don't put money in your bank account. And what was great about my agent all these years, since I met them first, when I said, I'm not going to audition for a terrorist. So they are aware of what I want, or at least what I don't want. And my agent were just behind me. And um, they said, fine, but don't complain about the hardship. It was hard. And then I did a play, of course. I did a play at the National Theatre. But you know, there is something lots of people don't know, that with this play, when we did it at the Anglic, Lots of people came to watch, and they said, oh, that's amazing. Like For the first time, we have a play. Lots of people were saying, after the great reviews, it's amazing. It's the first play where the lead actors or the, you know, the languages that are spoken in London are different accents, different colors, yet it, all these five stars everywhere and great reviews. So that was the first thing that said, you don't need to lean on big TV stars, whatever, to make a great play. And then the second thing is the payment. When the show went to the West End, this show doesn't make a lot of money because you need to reduce the capacity of seats and everything. It sells ridiculously, though. Yeah, yeah of course, it's sold out. <laughs> but, like, but all of us, the actors, we got paid the same for more than six months during this play. Five months in the West End and then at the Young Vic and then even in New York in St. Anne's, we agreed, all of us, to get paid the same. No matter the size of the role. Yeah, and, and that takes a lot of us to accept that in a way when someone has, you know, a few lines and someone else like the whole time on stage. But we wanted to say something with this as well, that we're together and the message is way more important than any of us. And I don't disagree, but I don't use the word ownership sometimes. It's more being responsibility, being a metaphor to represent so many people. Because, of course, you, I always have this question. What stories am I using to show myself as a good actor? Or am I using these stories for the sake of these stories? And then you question the money and you question all these. And going back to your question, how... How are you living? I think the recognition we're getting as artists and actors and what the play is doing everywhere it goes to people is, to me, maybe I'm being too poetic and romantic, but give me a little bit of money to live and this great impact on the audience, and this is my job as an actor. So in some sense, the work itself and the play are the same metaphor about a community mm -hmm. about living and working together kind of runs counter to late-stage capitalism. There's an element of that. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think we really believe in it. It is the issue of our age, and we are going to have to find a response to it. At the moment, we haven't. We're a long way from finding a response. The responses that we are having are often virtue signaling, which is saying, look, we're, we're showing you that we have a response to it, but we're not actually taking then responsibility for that, whether that be in London or whether that be here or Australia, which is where I'm from, our response to people in need is is so fraught. And I hope that what a show like this does is open up the conversation that these are people and, and that there are lots of people in need. And we have the capacity to help. 
uh, a, a big thing the Joes are wrestling with in the plays. Did they help when they were in the jungle? How do you help? Can you help? Do you make it worse or do you make it better? And ultimately, I think where they come out is that you've got to do something. And in the United States, you have the orange yam in the White House who is working against this sort of humanity, which makes it a little more difficult. I understand that a couple of cast members had a little trouble getting in to the United States. Well, Mark could speak a little bit about that because <laughs> he was one of them. The travel ban basically affected three of our company, mm. which was two gentlemen who were from Iran and Abar. And we had amazing lawyers and we got amazing support from the mayor of New York and from mayor the of mayor London. of London. And so we had a, an amazing backing, which, which is a luxury that we have because people believed in the show and what it was doing. So at the same time, I was eligible for citizenship, British citizenship, but I didn't apply for it because I didn't want to put my travel document in the home office, waiting for my British passport because I didn't want to put the company in trouble when we applied for a visa to come to America. Right. And then because of the travel ban and they were delaying any response, you, you can't get a response from the American embassy. And we were heading towards traveling to New York and I'm not ready. There is no visa. There is nothing. Th then the mayor of, of London and some lawyers helped supported the case to expedite my citizenship. So I received my British passport a week before I flew to New York. I received my American visa the day I flew to New York. How long so was it before it opened at St. Anne's after that? We did a couple of weeks rehearsal there and then yeah. we put it on. It's been really interesting doing the show in the US because we didn't come, obviously we, we didn't predict that where historically or where politically mm. the world was going to be. But I think it's an issue that's going to keep coming up. And so wherever we take it, it seems to resonate within the context of, of the country at large. You talk about the orange yam. I would say in response to that, the amazing thing I think I've, I've found about this country is that the, there is a huge amount of compassion in response to that. And, and that is to be applauded and encouraged and mobilized. Because I, I do think uh, Americans have always had an, an amazing facility and capacity for compassion. Well, it helps that uh, Ben Brantley gave it a rapturous review. We like, yeah, we like Ben. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. There is something as well about the jungle that the more we do it, we perform it, we notice and realize that it's not about Syrians and Afghan and refugees and border. It's about seeking refuge. It's about being safe. And this safety not necessarily inside the house, but inside the home. And it's to be inside the community. And that's why wherever we go, it's just because it touches the peace. And, you know, I don't say this out of confidence or arrogance that we have a great piece of theatre. Every time I do the show, I say, oh, is it really good? But out of the really gratitude of knowing how humans can just suddenly give them something um, built by love and kindness and, you know, safety, they receive it and they react to it. And this is what happened in New York. It's amazing. Justin Martin, I want to switch gears just a tiny bit. First, quick question. Was The Crown just kind of a day job? No. I mean, look, we did The Audience, which was a, a play on which The Crown was sort of based. Steve and I did that together with Peter Morgan. And like all the things that we're interested in, we're always interested in how we contribute and have a conversation with the zeitgeist. And it felt like a really 
powerful and interesting way, not just to examine that family, but to examine a, a history of England. And I'm, you know, I'm an Australian, uh, I suppose, I say Australian Republican, but I fell in love with her partially because that show has taught me about the history of England. Are you working on the third season? Well, the third season's happening now. We, we are associated with it, but we've been doing our plays, so we've been a bit busy this season. So you haven't had a chance to interact much with Olivia Coleman? <laughs> I haven't. No, I haven't. I Stephen saw her, has seen her a little bit, but we've been pretty flat out with this and another play of ours called The Inheritance, which we hope will come to the U.S. soon. Yeah. Well, now I want to switch gears back to the jungle. Okay. We've talked about the origins. We've talked a little bit about the themes. So let, let's... Talk about the show. Okay, so there's a story, right? Yeah, yeah. Look, the basic sort of structure of the story is it's the creation and destruction of the jungle. It existed essentially for just over a year as a place. And the jungle was basically, it was originally called Zhangal, which is a Pashto word which means forest. And, and actually, there were lots of Zhangals. It was where people set up their tents who were trying to get to the, the UK. And the interesting thing about Calais is it's the closest point in distance from France to England across sure. the channel. And it's obviously, that's why the, the Eurostar train tunnel is there. That's why the, a lot of the ferries leave from there. And the refugees have been there for a long, long time. I mean, different people coming through. It's been part of the route. And they were in the forest. And what the French government did is put them all in one spot, which was this old uh, rubbish tip where it was covered in sand at that stage. And they went, well, let's put them all in an area so that we can see how many people there are and we can control it because there was a lot of it going on in car parks in the city of Calais. And they were getting a sort of a real backlash from the, the residents of Calais, which is a sort of an old sea, seaside holiday town. And at its height, it was about 10,000 people. And when it was evicted, it went down to about 3,000, uh, and of which the French government thought there were just over 1,000. And so there was a sort of a, a big court case trying to work out who was right and who was wrong in terms of the census and, and did France have enough places. And eventually the court sided with the government and they demolished it. And what you see through this, the show is how it is sort of the story of how it, how the jungle started and how it finished. And uh, what theatre does, I suppose, in a different way to film is it allows you to see lots of different characters and journeys. But I think the core conceit at the centre of it is is the Joes questioning whether they helped and the people they met and, and, or whether they made it worse. In the course of this building, it was built by refugees originally and some volunteers. But when that little boy, Alan Cody, appeared on the beach, which is an image that we all we all saw suddenly a whole slew of English volunteers came and went it's an hour from England on the Eurostar we've got to go and do something and so they went out to help and suddenly there was all this money and suddenly there was all this support trying to help and, and most of the people who were helping were not professionals and they and so they didn't really know there were a lot of young people um, there were no NGOs or very few NGOs out there so it really was a sort of humanitarian crisis on England's doorstep and there's some crazy fact like over half the country gave one pound or less to that cause, which is a huge amount of people supporting refugees in, in that part of the world. And then, of course, the next thing that happened was the Paris attacks happened. Uh, and at the same night, there was a, a fire. And that was when the jungle started to disintegrate because the, the French announced uh, emergency laws because they're in a state of emergency. And slowly but surely, the jungle was dismantled. And those people still exist. Uh, and they're still there. They're just not, there's no camp with volunteers helping them out anymore. Was the camp tents? Was it build, wooden buildings? What did it look like? It started off as tents, and then slowly but surely, it became more permanent. By that, I mean people were donating timber, and, and they were building these sort of makeshift houses. And in the show, we talk about, well, we show one of the boys that we knew over there, who was a, an 18-year-old Etonian boy, who led 
in building houses for the camp. And he f- designed a flat pack house that was then given and then the refugees could put it together themselves. Uh, and that was all about just giving people some sort of humanity while they were there. So it, it tells the story of the camp from beginning to end and the theater is in, in the play too? We talk about the theater at one point, we reference it. What we more do is there was this restaurant called the Afcaf, the Afghan cafe that we used to spend all our time. So we set it in there and because it was a community space that people would come into and it, it's sort of a pseudo amalgamation of a church, of a mosque, of a women and children's center, of a school, uh, of the restaurant and of the theater all in one. But the restaurant was interesting to us because it was the place that we went every day and we met people from all you know, different nationalities. So when you're constructing the orchestra section of the Curran, that's sort of, in a way, the same pattern similar to the actual cafe? Yeah, it's slightly bigger than the cafe, but in terms of its design, its shape, the way it fits together, it's exactly the same. We've, we made some of the tables a little wider because some of the acting happens on them, but it, it's essentially the same design. And if you look at the pictures, everything from the fabrics that they use on the walls to the television in the corners and the and the um, the carpet, the dirt on the floor. It's exactly our experience of it. And there are how many lead characters? Usually a show has one, two, or three major characters. Well, you've got a lot. It's a real ensemble piece. And, and really? look, I mean, I say to the cast, we couldn't do the show without one of them. We need every single person of them to make this show. And it's one of the show, well, these few shows that do that. And, I, and what we've tried to do is find moments where you can feel or connect to all of them. Amar, now let's go back to something that Justin said very early on in terms of your own work and difficulties in putting on your character in the context of being surrounded by onlookers, you know, the audience. You've got to be very open, don't you? Yeah. And usually immersive theater happens outside the so-called Italian box. Usually immersive theater happens in a venue, you create a, like a world, a hotel, a street, a park, but never, you don't bring an immersive piece inside the theater where people come to watch a play rather than experience it. So being inside the theater, yet you need to create this world that as if people that actually outside that theater is one thing. And then the other thing you really need to, your radars should be always on from every side. Because it's you, essentially in the round. I can't talk to you without really projecting in a way or another or the audience behind me. So you you need to watch everything and be watched and and really play play a very, very generous passing game the whole time to what, everyone. What happens if you drop a line? We help each other sometimes. <laughs> we help each other. If it makes sense for one to say the line for you. It's a very tricky one because... It's a play that, if you read it, you say, oh, I can't imagine this is the same. Because there is so much improvisation, but inside, we need to really be aware and be generous to orchestrate it well with others. And you need to be authentic. You can't just stand, you can't get away with it. Like one of um, our friends who plays Derek, Dominic, he said, when we do like a Shakespeare play or whatever, or any play you can you can just go to the dark and get away with it like let your <laughs> let the actor who's saying the lines and the monologue go for it and you just stand watch everything here you can't do that you have yeah. to be doing You're something alive as a character all the time so how does that work i mean when if the play is going on 30 feet to the right and yeah. you're 
30 feet to the left and you don't have a line for like five minutes, what do you do? Well, there is a, a word that Stephen and Justin use a lot, especially with me because I'm partly the narrator, like I narrate the story, is that always remember to be the arrow that directs people. The arrow. What you need to do is when people look at you, the only thing you're doing is showing the audience where the focus is. I know that like, for instance, if you're switching scenes in a regular play, you just stop. Yeah. You know, you become a statue. Yeah. But here you can't really do that because you're standing on a table and there are people looking yeah. up at you. Well, well, that is, this is what, again, this is, again, it's, it's a very sensitive, intricate thing that we need to trust the director's choice by saying, for example, I want you to leave right now because there are not, there's another scene. And some actors, I'd wish at one point, like why there is no blackout or whatever. Right. Because everyone is seeing me leaving the scene. But no, when you trust that the actors who are starting the scene, it's like, I don't know, this sprinting game where you hand each other a rod. Relay race. Right? Yeah. It's like, it's the same. It's, um, it's just you're leaving the stage as someone else is leading the scene. You need to trust them that they will pull focus. And you need to be generous that you shrink as energy and leave. And that's, that's not easy. And... Sometimes a school of drama doesn't teach you this, a community does. And this is what, you know, these directors, I say sometimes to Justin and Stephen, say, I, I don't want to do acting after that. <laughs> Not because of the jungle and how, it's just, it's really important in this industry, you know, with all these, you know, Me Too and Time's Up and everything, to always feel safe inside the rehearsal room and outside the rehearsal room and in the dressing room. And to have open conversations about everything and feel safe and moreover, like feel protected by you, people who make decisions. Yeah. I mean, look, just to say one other little thing about the, that is the immersive nature of it. And, and it, it means that it, you can hold multiple little scenes going on with as long as the dominant action is served. So it might mean everywhere you sit in the theatre, you're getting a different experience because you might there might be a conversation going on that's a tiny little conversation in one corner, but the dominant action is still going on in the mm. middle. And so you can sit in different spaces and get a completely different yeah. show. And I, and I love that about theatre. Well, what about the audience interacting? I mean, you don't want them to interact because you're in a play and you're in, in Calais in the jungle. At the same time, the audience is in San Francisco and they're looking up at you how do you interact? Do you kind of go, eh, no. no? Actually, we want them to interact. Oh, really? But, there is, but they learn something. Again, Justin calls it the, uh, the rules of the game or the game rules. Straight away, people know that to what extent they can react. Actually. Yeah, they know that they're safe, I think. Yeah. Basically, we treat them as if there are other people who are in the cafe with customers. us. There are other customers in the cafe. And, and I think that... Uh, and it lends itself. There's a safety to that because you can be. Sick. And when we were, we used to hang out in that cafe, in the jungle, there'd be always a whole lots of people that weren't interacting necessarily with you, but who were there. The actors will talk to the audience. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they'll talk directly to an individual. Sometimes they're just talking to the audience in general. But the holding form of the show is really a series of meetings. And so we we staged the first, which was when we were there. There was the first democratic meeting of the jungle, and we staged a birthday party that we were at, uh, and a couple of different things. So that the holding pattern is a meeting, which fits perfectly with the cafe and an audience. What about dancing and singing? Is there? There is some yeah. dancing. There's singing. There's a lot of music. Our experience of the jungle was that there was a lot of energy there, and so and a lot of an, of people with an amazing 
uh, with amazing talents and skills. And we want to showcase that. And we don't want to say, look, this is this was just a terrible place. There were some young boys that came and saw the show who we met in the jungle, a little Afghan boy called Mortar. And he came and he he um, he walked in and he was sort of shocked, I suppose, a little bit because he was going, my gosh, this is exactly like the cafe. But he said, look, it, I'm so glad that it's been built because it was the best time and the worst time in my life. And we don't want to say here is the, the only the worst time because that's untruthful to the experience. For a lot of people, it was it was both the best time and the worst time. In the middle, when the hope was there, that was probably the best time before the pressures toward the end. Then. Yeah, I think so. Although I think certain people forge friendships in a very profound way, even at the toughest times. And even at the best times, uh, there was such a, there was a tension because every night, you know, a huge majority of the, the residents of that camp were going and trying to climb over fences, were getting beaten up by French police. And then we're getting released back into the jungle because there was this sort of crazy, there's this crazy law in Europe, which is you've got to claim asylum in the first country that you arrive in. And the tricky thing with that is that obviously the UK can never really be the first country someone arrives in because it requires you to get into a truck in Aleppo and then the truck suddenly appears in London and you get out of the truck there, which is unrealistic. But it also means that France, well, sorry, predominantly Italy, Greece, are taking the brunt of refugees coming through because they are the first countries that you arrive in. Is there any chance, Amar, that in the near future that Syria can be rebuilt? To me, it seems as if Syria has scattered, that yeah. the country is just a portion of what it was. But when we say the near future, I don't know what does the near future mean, because before 1946, it was the larger Syria, and that generation never accepted Sarkis and Pico agreement when Syria was divided, or Belfa promise, and what created Palestine and Israel and all this um, problem. But I'm from this generation. It's really uh, indescribable. Like, I can't describe it because, of course, it's mixed with my feelings. But I think hope is very important and belief. And, you know, as long as there are, there are mothers, great mothers, giving birth to courageous children. Yeah, I hope. 100 years? I don't know. But I think when everything kicked off, I'd say it's going to take at least 30 years. Now I say maybe 100 years. It's like, look at Iraq. You say it will never be, you know. I've interviewed Salman Rushdie several times. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said that um, Islam is ism right, tends to pop up and burn out after 70 years. So we maybe have about 40 years of 35, 40 years of that to go, and then we'll see mm. what happens on the other side. Two final questions. Amar Hajj Ahmad, you've got the jungle now. What's next? I can't talk in front of the director. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know, actually, like um, any actor, you know, again, I'm working with directors that there are so many actors around the world. They'd love to pay money to be in a workshop with them. And I'm working with them and they trust me. And I can't tell you how important that is to me. It's priceless to be trustworthy by your directors in such a piece. Um, I was seen in London, Young Vic, West End, New York. I was offered really, really good things. And this time after New York, during New York run, I was offered a big TV thing. And I just looked and said, it's not the right time to leave the jungle. 
Some people said, you're crazy. <laughs> the money, the money. No, <laughs> but I, it's not the time to leave the jungle. What the jungle, I, I think there is a huge responsibility and the money will come. Uh, good projects will come. There is nothing next other than finishing this. Let's go through the press nut, like the opening and open our show to the audience. And then We feel very lucky that the amount of cast that were with us from the very first production at the Young Vic are still with us and are still doing the show. So you're, what you're getting in San Francisco is, is the absolute first class, uh, long-term performers of the show. Final question. What is the inheritance and what do you have after that? Justin, Mark. Yeah, the inheritance is a, is, a, is a big play written by Matthew Lopez, uh, which we, we did at the Young Vic, and then we, we took the West End, and we hope it will come to New York. But it's a, it's a rewriting of Howard's End, looking at the legacy. Uh, I, I suppose it's, I call it horizontal legacy, which I've got from Matthew, which is the different ways in which different communities pass down history to each other. And in this particular case, it's the, it's the gay community, and uh, there's a whole generation of of us who do not really know about what happened in the 80s with the epidemic or who have heard of it but don't really understand the effects it had uh, and it's a play really ex exploring that but from a generation today learning about it and coming to understand it and then after that we do well i don't know we just keep Can busy I say something about it it's 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 a seven and a half hours play i watched it two times and i visited a few times in the tech but please, when it comes to America, like I'm not advertising, but it's I'm not doing marketing sessions, but it's a remarkable masterpiece of work. It's amazing on all levels. It's great. I, you know, like I say to people, but like, don't come see us in the jungle. Go see. See them both. <laughs> see them both. <laughs> we we set them both on a table, so we don't have any other idea. <laughs> You're going to go back to the crown. Uh, we might go back to the crown. Yeah, uh, there's a few films in the pipelines for both Stephen and I, and then and there's just more theatre we want to do. Uh, there's just so many things in the in the world to to talk about, and and it feels like a duty of ours to engage with these conversations uh, and conversations beyond ourselves. I think it's very hard to admit that you're blind and constantly told that you're blind but one of the best ways of seeing what the world is is to admit that you are and start picking that apart